Radio Mano Papachango. It's Super Bowl Sunday in the dimension I inhabit. Uh, don't know where you are. Don't know if you give a shit about Super Bowl Sunday for my international listeners. Good on you. Who gives a damn? Real Madrid, El Clasico is much more important, right? Or Liverpool, Manchester United, or uh, Munich and some other German team. What are the other good German teams? I don't know. I don't think Berlin really has much of a team, do they? There must be a Berlin team or two. Um, anyway, in the U.S. of A., Trumplandia, today is a national holiday. Although typical of American holidays, it happens on a weekend because we don't want to give you a goddamn day off. Get to work, motherfucker. I watched um, Where to Invade Next last night, Michael Moore's most... I think it's his most recent film, although I think he did a Trump film, like a slapdash Trump film in there somewhere. But anyway, he sort of goes around the world and um, looks at things that other countries are doing much better than the U.S. Uh, He goes to Sweden and looks at their prison system where they actually treat prisoners with dignity. And the recidivism rate is one of the lowest in the world at 20 percent as opposed to 80 percent in the U.S., where we humiliate and uh, marginalize and uh, beat and rape and treat like slaves, lo and behold, they get out of prison and turn to crime. They're angry. Why are they so angry? Gee, I don't know. Anyway, uh, where else does he go? He goes to um, to Italy. That's, that's what set me off. He goes to Italy and uh, he's talking to an Italian couple, working class, uh, and notes that they have five, I think they have five weeks paid vacation plus another like week and a half of national holidays, which are paid uh, every year. And then they also get a double payment. It's called the 13th month, which they also do in Spain, where at the end of the year you get um, a double, your last month is a double payment. Although it's funny because, you know, he presented that as like, oh, my God, it's so generous. And and most of my Spanish friends think it's pretty great, too. But, you know, when you when you look at it, clearly all they're doing is they're saving your money for you. They're not paying you more money. They're just paying it out in 13 payments rather than 12 payments. And in fact, what that means is they get to hold on to that money through the year. And if you've got you know, 5,000 employees and you're holding one thirteenth of their annual salary throughout the year, you're probably making a good bit of money on that, uh, either just interest or investment or whatever. And none of that goes to the employees that just goes into your pocket. So I'm not so sure that's this incredibly generous, wonderful thing. It's just, you know, dude, you know, take a 13th of your monthly salary, put it in the bank and spend it at the end of the year. It's the same damn thing. Anyway, uh, he also went to France and uh, was, you know, talking, he was in the French schools and showing how 
wonderful their uh, their lunch program is and how they really the kids eat on you know actual silverware and they serve each other and so they they see lunch as a course as a class they take a full hour and they learn how to eat and how to serve and how to sit at a table and how to you know talk with each other and i think that's a great idea to use meal time is a learning experience as opposed to america where it's like get in there you know feed trough gulp it down 20 minutes get back to class whatever craziness but it was kind of weird to see michael moore you know obese incredibly unhealthy michael moore uh lecturing on healthy eating practices there was something slightly disturbing about that i have to say Anyway, why the fuck am I talking about that? I had no intention of talking about that. I guarantee you. When I turned on the mic, I have a little list of things I wanted to mention here. And talking about the film I saw last night and Michael Moore's weight issue was not on the list. I have no... That, that's the thing. It's so strange how this happens. Okay, a couple of things to mention. If you're listening to this right away and not in the archives, in the mists of time somewhere. But if you're listening to this on Monday, the um, something, what, it, what what is Monday? What's tomorrow? The 6th of February. Um, be, be advised that I'm going to be on Rogan's podcast Tuesday, the 7th. Uh, if you want to watch it, uh, I think we start at 1 p, uh, 1.30 p.m. And he, uh, he puts his podcast up live on YouTube, Vimeo, I'm not sure where they go exactly, but if you go to Joe Rogan Experience, you know, just Google Joe Rogan Experience and you'll see me there doing that. What else? I'm doing a podcast with Brendan Walsh, who's a local comedian here in LA. I think he's in San Francisco right now on tour, but I'm doing his podcast Thursday. I don't know if he holds them or puts them up right away or whatever, but keep your eye out for that. And then Saturday night, I'm doing a live podcast recording with Cracked.com, um, which people tell me is pretty big, pretty popular. Uh, we're doing it here in Hollywood. So if you're in L.A. and you want to come out and uh, heckle me, here's your chance. It's at the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, Theater on Sunset, I believe it is, in Hollywood. UCB Theater, Saturday night, Cracked.com. I'll be talking about, you know, my usual shtick, love, sex, prehistory. I think it's like a Valentine's Day themed podcast, whatever. Uh, Today's guest is uh, an old friend of mine, Robert Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. He is one of the world's most well-informed experts on the cannabis plant. Uh, I tell the story, we talk about how we met in the podcast, so I won't tell it here. I think I've told it elsewhere. It's one of the more memorable uh, meeting someone, making a friend experiences in my life. It's a pretty crazy experience where, you know, if you if you have the sort of mystical mindset, you might say the universe intervened on my behalf. Uh, if you don't, you might just say, wow, what a coincidence that was. And then you just sit there and smug in your non-mystical certainty that life is nothing but happenstance. Uh, Anyway, 
Robert Clark. We have a really nice conversation. He was here in LA. We recorded this just a couple weeks ago. I also wanted to mention my friend Erin. I mentioned in the last podcast, she's on the West Coast, uh, sort of bopping between house sitting gigs. So if you've got a friend or you yourself have a house on the West Coast, anywhere really between, I would say, Portland and San Diego, and you need somebody to take care of your cats or water your plants or something while you're off surfing in Hawaii or whatever it is you're doing, uh, get in touch and I'll put you in touch with her. She's already stated a couple apartments of friends so you can get references if if my uh, reference isn't enough to satisfy you. She, uh, you can talk to people whose cats have not died while in her care. So that's happening. And uh, another sort of community development thing I wanted to talk about, uh, our good buddy Adam McDade, who did all the illustrations for the Tangentially Reading book, which is coming soon. Um, Fantastic artist. He's traveling now. And uh, I'm going to pause this and pull up the email with a list of places where he's going. I'm back. You didn't even know I left, did you? You didn't notice. Amazing how that works. Um, okay, Adam is currently on on the road. Over the next few months, he's going to go through Manila, Puerto Princesa, and El Nido, which I guess are in the northern Philippines. Then he's heading to India, and then he'll be in Bali from the end of February through mid-March. Uh, he's got a blog up about his travels and so on. Anyway, the point is, if you're going to be in any of those places or you've recently been in those places or you know people in those places and you want to like put him in touch with somebody or hook him up with a really interesting travel experience or something like that, please check him out. Adam McDade, A-D-A-M and then M-C-D-A-D-E dot Weebly, W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. He's a very cool guy. Uh, I've never met him in person, but we've corresponded quite a bit. And uh, he did, I don't know how many illustrations. Every guest that's in the book, uh, which is, I think, 21, 22, did them all. Uh, told him we wanted to pay him. He's like, no, no, I just want to be involved. I really, you know, I want to be part of the community, want to give something back. 22 fucking illustrations. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to do, but they're very well done. And uh, so he he put a lot of time into this and uh, he's a very cool guy. He definitely understands the whole sort of karmic vibe. So if you are in a position to lend him a hand, please do. Uh, I'd really appreciate it. Okay, what else? Da, 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 da. Last thing I was thinking of is my little insight of the week. I was talking with a friend who is, I guess, in mid thirties. Maybe this was, yeah, a few days ago, my buddy Justin came down from Portland and he and I and Chris James drove into the desert. And uh, we stopped and saw Tal Ruspoli on our way back, which was cool because Tal, Justin, And Chris James have all been on the podcast. It was like a podcast reunion. We should have taken a group picture. We didn't. But if you follow me on Instagram, that Chris Ryan, uh, you will see some of the photos that we took in the desert. We were out at uh, the Salton Sea, which is a crazy place. Very post-apocalyptic place. Um, We went to Slab City and uh, East Jesus and 
Salvation Mountain. Any of you who've been out there know what I'm talking about. It's this kind of like, you know, after civilization is gone, Mad Max looking kind of place. And uh, Slab City is built on these concrete slabs that uh, General Patton, the World War II general, had done uh, training out there for the North African invasion. And then when they left, I guess they were doing tank maneuvers and, you know, whatever. And then when they left, they left these concrete slabs there. And um, so some hippies moved in there and then some, uh, you know, it's just sort of become, I think someone out there that we were talking to said it started out really cool because it was people who wanted to get away from civilization. Um, And recently it's become less cool because now it's a lot of people who need to get away from civilization. So I guess there are a lot of criminals on the run and ex-cons and, you know, I don't know, um, disreputable folk, of course, not all of whom are actually disreputable. Some of whom are great people, I'm sure, just victims of the system, you know, like we were talking about before, a prison system that isn't interested in rehabilitation. It's interested in vengeance and punishment and humiliation, which, as any parent will tell you, is not really a good way to change someone for the better. But who says we're rational? Who the fuck says we're rational in America? We're not rational. Uh, Anyway, we were talking and... um, Justin, episode 99, is in his mid-30s. So maybe it was with him I was talking about this. But it occurred to me that one of the things I've learned in the last 15 years or so as I went from, you know, 40 to I'll be 55 next week, uh, is that, you know, when you're in your mid-30s, you at least in my case, this is all just personal experience, but when I was in my mid-30s, I remembered my adult life quite clearly. So I consider my adult life beginning, you know, in Alaska, basically that trip I took to Alaska. If you've listened to the Toma episodes, you know, you heard how pivotal that was for me, how it changed the course of my life from being an academic to being more of an adventurous sort of independent, whatever I am. And uh, that's when my adult life began. That's when I became me And then I just got older and, you know, accumulated experience. But the basic design of my personality hasn't changed since then. So that's, you know, that's when I became my adult version. And as many of you know, most traditional societies mark that uh, transformation of child into adult quite explicitly with ceremonies, um, often with uh, rituals involving hallucinogens or fasting or dancing or circumcision, pain with, with standing great pain, something to induce uh, visions often that are used then to give a new name to the person. So one of my favorite examples is Geronimo, the great Apache warrior, um, leader, war chief. Uh, his childhood name was fat boy. So he was fat boy. And then he went through the initiation and he came out Geronimo, pretty different dude. Uh, he, uh, so, so that's a very important thing, you know, where you can leave your childhood behind because childhood's full of humiliation and ridiculousness and mistakes and, 
you know, and, and sort of going down roads that turn out to be dead ends. That's the whole point of fucking childhood. But without that sort of initiation into adulthood, some of that stuff lingers and, you know, you might sort of feel dragged down by it later in life. Whereas if you, you, you sort of, it's like you, like my first car, I wrecked the shit out of my first car. I ended up totaling it uh, after beating the shit out of it, banging it into things. But then you get, you know, you, that's your learner car. And then you get rid of that. And then, you know, when you're 21, 22, whatever, you know how to drive, then you get a car and it's a nice car and you don't fuck it up, hopefully. Right. Uh, if you have to keep driving that beat up piece of shit that you learned on through your whole life, that's, that's kind of humiliating when the valet takes a look at it. Believe me. Uh, I'm driving a beat up piece of shit right now. And I, every time I have to leave it with a valet, I feel like <laughs> Jesus it's in LA. That's a, that's a big problem. Uh, yeah. What am I talking about? Oh, I know what I was talking about. Okay. So when you're 35, you look back and you remember your entire adult life and you think it's always going to be that way. But what I've realized it for me is that I have like a 15 year memory. Basically, it's like it's like you have a flashlight that is it's not wide enough to see the whole night, you know, but if you're shining it into a small space, you say, oh, this flashlight lights up everything. But then you go outside and you realize, oh, no, it only lights up a certain, you know, range. There's a width that it lights up. And the flashlight of my memory illuminates about 15 years. And everything before that is like, I don't, it's like a dream or a movie I saw or a story somebody told me. You know, I remember, I guess, but I remember the stories I've told about it more than I remember the actual experience itself. And I don't know if all the cells in your body or all the, you know, molecules in your body turn over every 15 years, but that would be an instant, in, interesting correlation. But anyway, I'm so I feel like I'm 55. So I remember back to 40 and it's pretty clear. It's pretty immediate. I see the colors. I remember the sensation much before that then it starts to be a story it starts to be a narrative it starts to be historical in some weird way i remember a line from uh the czech author milan kundera i don't know which book it is uh but i've read f a few the unbearable lightness of being is my favorite but the book of laughter and forgetting is also very beautiful uh and and very insightful anyway he says Memory is not the opposite of forgetting. Memory is a way of forgetting. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm going to just shut up now and thank you for uh, all your support. Uh, I saw there were a bunch of people who signed on to Patreon. In fact, let me let me sh give a shout out to you people because I appreciate you so much. Um, Everybody who, who supports the podcast through patreon.com or through my Amazon affiliate link helps me keep this podcast bullshit free, which I really appreciate because to be honest with you, if I have to read fucking ads for tax preparation services and website design shit and uh, I, I, I don't think I'd do it. I, you know, it got really old when I did it a few years ago. I felt ridiculous. Because for me, 
this is apart from all that bullshit. That bullshit is everywhere. Fuck, as soon as I get done with this, I'm going to go watch the Super Bowl, which is like, you know, the best commercials of the year, man. The best commercials of the year? What are you talking about, man? That's like, you know, this is the tastiest poison I drink all year. That, oh. Anyway, sorry. I, I can really get ranting about that shit. It's it's mental poison. Every time I'm, you know, somebody's like, you know, here at Exxon, we believe in the environment is the most important. Fuck you, man. You don't even work for Exxon. You're an actor. And whoever wrote those lines doesn't work for Exxon. He works in some advertising agency. He's a failed writer, you know, failed screenplay writer. Nobody even, the guy you see there is an actor. Everyone's an actor. They're all fucking actors. It's all bullshit. There is no here at Exxon. Exxon's a multinational corporation. There's no here. Ah. Anyway, so I see this, what we're doing now, the conversations I have, the connection I have with you, the connections you have with each other. This all exists separate from the commercial bullshit fucking world with hidden agendas and product placement. So if you support that, if you see this the same way as a little breath of fresh air where you can get away from all that shit, please support the podcast on patreon.com or through Amazon or send me money or I don't know, do whatever. Make make illustrations for the next book. Uh, here are some of the people who've signed up in the last uh, month or so. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole name because I don't know if you want me to, you know, I, maybe you don't want your whole name out there. But anyway, Nilesh or Nilesh. Seems like an international person. Thank you. I hope you didn't get fucked up in the airports recently. Gavin, Sophia, Adam, Adam McDade. Adam McDade, I am reading your whole name because I recognize it and I just got done talking about you, dude. Okay, Adam, you should not be giving money to the podcast. Orion, Cody, Chris, Josiah, Adam, Casey, Logan, Brock, Andrew, a.k.a. Oh, no, I don't know what that means. Uh, Philip, Nicholas, Mitchell, Adam, Janet, Chris, Sophia, or Sophie, sorry, M. Lucy, uh, Kim, John, Charles, Anthony, Junk Food, <laughs> Junk Food, that can't be your name, Junk Food Runners, I guess that's a company or something, uh, Brian, David, Randy, Sofa, Sofa Guru, that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's not your name either. Uh, Tana Joy, Jonathan, Schwilly, I don't know if that's his name, JD, Tom, Sean, uh, Glenn, Don, Mark, Thomas. Okay, that's the last couple of months people have signed up. I mean, a lot of these people sign up for a dollar, a dollar a month. You know, that's fine. A dollar a month, that's 25 cents a podcast. That makes my fucking day. Thank you. All right. So enough of me. This is Robert Clark. Super cool guy. If you have any interest in cannabis, this is the guy to talk to. And I'm not just talking about how getting high. He understands the chemistry of the cannabis plant. He understands the cultivation of the cannabis plant. He understands the history of it. He understands, most interestingly, for me anyway, the, the sort of history of human interaction with the plant. So you'll hear a lot of stuff about traditional growing techniques and and use of the plant in weaving and uh, carpets and uh, food and so on and so forth. So he's a real scholar of the cannabis plant. And by the way, he knows 
Simon. He and Simon are old friends. So if you listen to the episode with Simon, I don't remember which episode it was, but not too long ago, around 200 somewhere, uh, you'll, uh, you'll hear. I think we talked about Robert on that episode as well. So anyway, Robert Clark, check him out. Check out his books. Uh, and also check out, if you listen to this on uh, an app or whatever, if you want to see some cool photos, go to my site, tangentiallyspeaking.com, and you'll see uh, this episode. I'll post a bunch of photos Robert gave me of amazing fish that he's caught. He, By the way, he always puts them back. He's a sports fisherman. He doesn't kill them or eat them. One of the fish he talks about in the podcast is extremely rare. I think he said they're with like $3,000 or something. It's like the most sought after aquarium fish in the world. They're huge. And he was in Papua New Guinea fishing, you know, in some river. Anyway, uh, I'll put up a bunch of photos there and I'll also put links to Robert's books if you want to pick any of them up. All right. Thanks, folks. I'm going to play you out with one of my favorite songs. It's called Green Grass. It was written by Tom Waits initially. Uh, or originally, I should say. But this song is, this version is sung by Sibel, who is a Brazilian uh, singer. Beautiful version. It's, uh, you know, I was looking for songs that have something to do with weed or whatever, and I, I searched grass in my iTunes library, and this came up. It has nothing to do with weed at all. In fact, it's about death and reincarnation and love and all those beautiful things. Um, so it's... Uh, Totally unrelated, but I love it, so what the fuck. Here you go. Green Grass by Sibel. Go Falcons! Fuck you, Patriots! Lay your head where my heart used to be on the earth above me Lay down in the green grass Remember when you loved me Come closer, don't be shy Stand beneath the rainy sky The moon is over the Think of me as a train goes by Clear the tissues and brambles Whisper didn't hear Rambo Now there's a bubble of me And it's floating in me Stand in the shade the stars and he tossed them can tell the birds from the blossoms he'd never be free Oh
15 years, something like that. Was it that yeah, long? Ago? Long it's 2004, maybe? That be it? Yeah, Battle of the Day, so 13 years then, yeah. Fuck, man. It would have been wintertime. Yeah, well, uh, I'm really glad to have you on, partly because you're such an interesting guy, of course, but also that you can verify one of the most unbelievable stories that I tell people. <laughs> 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 because I, I think you pro I think I told you the story the night in, in question, but we were having dinner with friends and the friend had some contact at a bar that he occasionally could score some weed from or whatever. And But it's that shitty Vietnamese... Laotian full of dirts and rocks and you know the, like we we used to get in the 70s in yeah. the states you know and uh he and his wife were arguing and at dinner and it was this my wife and i were with them and it was like bad energy and so instead of going to the bar with them we said hey we're just going to go for a walk and you guys go and we'll see you tomorrow for the the what was it we're going on the the how long bay is that how long bay trip yeah right that's why we wanted the weed because we wanted to get high and check out those amazing islands and so they went off to the bar and uh, cassie and i went for a walk around hanoi and we saw you sitting there in that, I think it was an Italian restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said something about your shirt, like nice shirt, because it was batik. And you said, my girlfriend made it for me in Africa. And I said, oh, my wife's from, or my girlfriend, I don't know if we were married then, is uh, from Africa. And next thing you know, you invited us to join you for a drink. Yeah. And we sat down there and drank your wine with you. And long story short, it turned out you were on your way to Amsterdam the next day to be a judge in the Cannabis Cup competition. There you go. And you had a ball of Nepali hash that you gave us. And we showed up the next day at the boat, and my friend was like, sorry, man, I couldn't score any weed last night. And I was like, yeah, no worries. I got a golf ball of Nepali hash. <laughs> <laughs> it was like one of the most triumphant events of my life, man. It was yeah. incredible. Well, sometimes you get lucky. <laughs> Not nearly often enough, but that was pretty amazing. So anyway, you were, if I remember correctly, you were in Vietnam at the time, mm -hmm. consulting for the government on a commercial working, hemp thing uh, or something? Yeah, working on a hemp breeding project, trying to uh, develop varieties that perform well at semi-tropical latitudes. Right. Hemp is a, a northern temperate crop, basically. And when you move it to places with lower day lengths, shorter day lengths in the summertime, they tend to flower too early. Right. So they don't get really tall and have all the fiber they need. Right. Still produce seeds, but no, no fiber. Right. 
Now, before we get too far into this, one thing I should, I mean, just to start off, you're a world-renowned expert in on hemp, on cannabis in general. Cannabis in general. Yeah. Um, uh, you did your master's thesis, became uh, marijuana botany. Um, yeah, my undergraduate dissertation became the very first book, The Botany and Ecology of Cannabis, ah. 1977. And that was, so, so that was published in 77? Yeah, self-published. So, Back when people nice. actually printed things and stapled them themselves. Wow, okay. all right. That was fun. So, and that led to Marijuana Botany, which uh, was my first significant book. Still the book I'm best known for. Right. And it takes you, a while to, for things to sink in. That was 1981. So. 81, Wow. And uh, and that's a very scientific look at the the plant. How, yeah, basically. Yeah, basically how it grows and uh, in natural and and uh, man-made conditions, and a bit about its genetics as well. Right. And then the Encyclopedia of Hashish. Yeah, the Hashish book came out in 1998, and that's just called Hashish, and it's basically a history of hashish, but also how to make it up mm -hmm. to modern times. No extracts really. It was uh, prior to that time. It's traditional right. techniques. Right, so. like uh, with the shaking. Right, sieving or rubbing right, right off the Right, the, sort of the hand rubbing, the sort of Indian, uh, yeah. what's that stuff called? What do they call hash? Charas. Charas. Yeah. I met a guy named Charas. <laughs> yeah, his, his parents were hippies, of course. <laughs> of course they were. He was, um, he was actually an interesting dude. He was traveling with um, Daryl Hannah. Oh. And that was that was when I met Daryl Hannah. Uh, Charas invited me to a beach party near Barcelona, and she was there. And uh, this was just before Sex at Dawn came out. I had he, he I had given a pre-publication copy to Andy Weil. Do you know him? You ever sure. met him? Sure. Um, and uh, Andy had passed it along to to Charas, and then Charas. And Daryl Hannah were flying to Barcelona to to speak at um, a biofuel convention or something using uh, biofuels in vehicles, and um, she had read part of it on the flight over. And so when he called me to invite me to this party, he said, uh, "Hey, you know, bring. Do you have another copy of your book? Uh, a friend of mine would like a copy for herself." And I happened to have another one. I was like, "Yeah, all right, I'll bring it." I had no idea it was Daryl Hannah. So the first person who ever asked me to sign a copy of Sex at Dawn was Daryl Hannah. Nice. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Nice. Thanks to Charas. Well, yeah. you might remember when we met that you gave me a proof copy of it. It was still a sort of photocopied. In Hanoi? Thing. Yeah. I, no read, I read the whole thing. got back with comments to you a bit. Oh, but, fuck. But I believe then it was called The Prehistory of Sex rather than Sex at Dawn. But yeah, it could be. I that don't was know. A, that was wow. The formative stuff there. Wow. And then I'm later on, you got super famous and ended up on TED Talks and stuff. But. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knew? Who saw yeah. that coming? Yeah, that's crazy. So I was traveling. I had a copy in Hanoi with me. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. I, if not, you sent it to me later. Or I, I send, had a, I I had a downloadable one. I probably printed it somewhere. Ah, uh, okay. But yeah. it was definitely just eight and a half by eleven, just right. proof, proof sheets. Yeah. Wasn't yeah. even proofs yet. It was still you're still working on it. Yeah. yeah. Well, so after the hashish book, did you do you have another book? Yeah. Then we worked. Uh, Mark Merlin, he's a professor at University of Hawaii, mm. in Manoa campus. He is an ethnobotanist and geographer. Mm. 
and uh, been there for ages. And he's, uh, he and I wrote a book called Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany. Came out uh, about three years ago from University of California Press. And it took us 17 years to write it. Yeah. So I didn't really work on anything else much in the interim, at least nothing I, I finished that was very large. Yeah. And uh, if we'd known it was going to take so long, we probably wouldn't have started in the first place. Yeah. But why why did it take so long? Because there's so much information. Yeah. I mean, once you start really digging in uh, libraries, and then the internet changed everything right. right in the middle of the project. Suddenly you don't go to the library except to to retrieve tiny citations or something where you have to straighten out some little thing. I went back to the library as the last gesture of finishing the book. Mm. But for years before that, all the journals are you know, right on the, the internet now. If you wait yeah. for a printed copy, it's six months later. Yeah. So it, and so few journals print anymore anyway. Right. So really, it's uh, that changed a lot. The information access improved, and just the amount of information. There are thousands of peer-reviewed articles about various aspects of cannabis. Hmm. It, and is that really taking off now? Are the, I mean, there are already thousands in the restrictive environment of the eighties, nineties. At this point, are you seeing a flourishing of research? Absolutely. Yeah. Primarily people looking at the medical applications of cannabis. Right. Um, agronomic research on hemp growing and things is sort of peaked out for now. There'll be more breeding going on to make better varieties if there's economic uh, incentive to do so. Because it's not really a complicated plant to grow, right? No, it's quite easy to grow. Yeah. It's. Uh, that's the conundrum. It's easy to grow and, and difficult in most circumstances to convert it into money. But it's quite easy to grow. The labor of growing marijuana, the trick is, is what you do with it and how you handle it and where it goes. Mm. You know, even today, even though you have a legal dispensing system here in the state of California for years, that, that's still the process. It, it's, it's an efficient weed in many cases. It just kind of grows on its own and irritates farmers, but uh, it's, it's not a difficult plant to grow. Yeah. Even indoors, people have it pretty wired. People are, would be a good aquarist or something or a good home gardener or any skill that takes a bit of discipline. You can grow pot. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, I, I started growing weed in my closet when I was like 13 years old. Yeah, it didn't work out very well. You know, I had a lot of trial and error. But to tell you how cool my parents were, um, they were they had their house for sale, and I was growing weed inside a, like one of those railroad trunks that I had. I installed a <laughs> lamp on the top, and I had the weed inside. Of I thought I was getting away with something, and um, the realtor was showing the house. And there was light coming from under the closet door. And she opened the door, and there was all this weed and the fluorescent lights and stuff. And my, my mother spoke to me later and said, Honey, would you mind just turning off the lights when the house is being shown? <laughs> it's like, and I think I was kind of petulant and angry about that. You know, what a dick I was. But, uh, yeah, pretty cool. And then when we were in Florida, I had some weed growing, and then I went back to college and... 
mom harvested it for me and put it in little baggies and you oh, know little stickers cool, mom's mom's poolside you know and mom's you know whatever by the garden or whatever it was <laughs> yeah so what what got you into this because you're you this is you've been doing this your whole life right I mean yeah pretty much you said you're undergraduate and yeah. uh, you've yeah. been now you're traveling all over the world studying the cultural implications mm -hmm. and the uses are you an ethnobotanist by training yes. is that yes. what your, your degree is in? absolutely and you went to Berkeley is that right I went to uh, uh, University of California Santa Cruz oh, for my undergraduate Cruz. and right. then I, I didn't graduate but I went to Indiana University in a doctoral program there uh, but before I ended that I ended up uh, running off and going to work right yeah growing yeah I moved to the Netherlands so we could uh, uh, grow right. under license in a legal climate and, and that was when 87 87 yeah. right so what so getting back to like the origins of all this where'd you grow up I grew up in uh, San Diego, near San Diego, a little town called Del Mar. Grew up right on the beach, right. just like where we're sitting now, just about right. 70 miles south. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I grew up being interested in marine biology mm. and forestry and, you know, outdoor scientific kind of aptitude. And I went to university thinking I would study those sorts of things. Um, Santa Cruz now has a marine biology department. They didn't then, but a good, strong biology department, very strong. And I uh, got involved there, and eventually I needed to graduate. And they allowed people to write a dissertation rather than taking qualifying exams. This was an alternative sort of school. Mm. We didn't have grades. Right. And uh, so that's what I did, and published it myself and sold it. And that was satisfying, of course. But the whole reason was I, I got turned on to weed in college, and I needed to graduate. Right. So I, I wrote something about it. It's pretty much all I was thinking about anyway. Right about what you love. Yeah. Well, there was, you know, sex and rock and roll, too. Yeah. But yeah. Exactly. It's a balance. It's a balance. Well, that's why I did, I mean, my dissertation was on sexuality because anything else I wouldn't have been able to maintain focus. <laughs> <laughs> you know, seriously, I just didn't give a shit about anything else that much. Um, so you got turned on to weed at college, and uh, what, so what year are we talking about? I went to university in 71. 71, so we're talking Colombian gold? Yeah, $40 yeah. $40 an ounce? Yeah, that's about right. Little, Lots of seeds? A lot of Mexican until the Colombian came around. Uh -huh. but, uh, yeah, it, but that was right at the time of uh, Mexican getting good, not being dirt right. clods and $10 right. four-finger lids. It got to be 20 30 yeah. even 40 bucks an ounce for, for weed, but it was light green and tasted nice. It didn't have very many seeds in it. Mm. it High grade, as we called it back then. Right. So when did the whole Cincinnati revolution happen in marijuana? Uh, Mid-70s, really. 1977, I believe it was, was uh, a book called Cincinnati. Mm. That was a photo book, coffee table photo book. For those of you who collect books, this is a seminal book in the cannabis world. And it's, it's guys who grew um, in Big Sur along the Big Sur Coast, up in the mountains there. Mm. And it's photos of, uh, it, it shows people how to do Cincinnati. It was the first one that showed pictures of it. And there were earlier cultivators' manuals, but they didn't quite get it. This is the first one where it just was a no-brainer. So did people understand that the frustrated female plants were the ones that were the most psychoactive and they just couldn't figure out how to do that or they didn't understand that? No, people just didn't understand it. I and mean, the people that did understand it were people who had been to Mexico 
maybe and seen this happen, or Thailand possibly even, places they traditionally grew seedless marijuana. So they were already growing, they were already eliminating the males pre-fertilization sure. uh, in Mexico. farthest back we know about this is in India back in the 18th century. Oh really, okay. Yeah, so so, they, so it was known that the, the THC and other psychoactive chemicals were in the resin, which are in the females, which is produced when they're sexually frustrated. Right. Yeah. Well, are just allowed to, the sexual frustration part is a bit anthropomorphic, but they, <laughs> they, do, uh, they yeah, do mature yeah. longer and devote more of their uh, energies and resources to making resin and staying alive yeah. for an extended period of time, waiting to be fertilized. In my own defense, yes. uh, I used to write a column for Canumo, uh, you know, the sort of oh, yeah. Spanish language high yeah. times, right? And I wrote an essay for them arguing that what gets you high when you smoke marijuana is female sexual energy, right? Because what you do is, well, as you know far better than me, you're growing the weed. As soon as they start to show any uh, secondary sexual characteristics, you eliminate the males. The females, which would normally produce a couple of flowers, get fertilized, and then go to seed, produce flowers, nothing happens, produce more flowers, right. nothing happens. So they become these sort of hypersexualized beings, you know, which we could say in human terms, like their breasts, we keep getting bigger and bigger, trying right. to attract male attention, and there is none, so they just keep, or, you know, their asses, or, you know, whatever your sexual characteristic of choice is, gets uh, exaggerated because it's not getting the response that in a natural setting it would be getting, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you're right, it is anthropomorphic, but it's also kind of an accurate depiction of what's happening because buds don't produce in nature, right? You don't get big old sticky no, resinous you, buds. You get resin on plants, but it's not to such uh, such levels. I mean, biologically, you'd say that it, they were spending their time reproducing the species. They're making seeds, which is energetically a huge yeah. labor to make fruits and seeds. Sure. So yeah. if they're not doing that and, and they have energies remaining to put on more flowers and just to cover those things with the resin. Is the resin for holding the pollen when it comes? Is no, that not the at purpose? all. It would, it would probably uh, confuse that, in fact. Any pollen that landed on a resiny surface would just die there. Uh, uh, no, the pollen grains land on the little hairs, the little pistils, right. which are a divided pistil, the, the white, two little white hairs. Yeah. And they land on those, and then the pollen grain germinates, just like a seed does, and, and its root, if you will, grows down that hair to the ovule at the very bottom and fertilizes it. So what is the biological function of the resin? Good question. I, I get a bit anthropomorphic in this answer, but to me, people look at, say that it uh, protects the plant from herbivory, from insects attacking it. Because they get stuck in it. They get stuck in it. There's a booting sort of thing, and they're full of all kinds of aggressive compounds, um, terpenoids, basically, the things that make cannabis smell so good. And a lot of those are repellent to insects, can be. This is known oh. from organic gardening, companion planting, this sort of stuff. Marigolds are good at it. So there's, there's partly that. But, and protection from the sun, protection from desiccation. But what's it, its real function, evolutionarily? To attract humans. You think so? Sure. We're, we're the major dispersal organism. For, for cannabis. We so, spread it all over the world. I mean, birds take it here and there. We took it everywhere. Right. And uh, yeah, it smells good. We're attracted to it. It's sparkly. And people immediately realize that that sticky stuff that sticks to their fingers is the part that got them high. 
Yeah. Hence the birth of hashish. Yeah, it's so similar to honey, they probably thought it was edible. Like this might be something you yeah, could yeah, eat. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, the easiest way to clean your sticky fingers is lick to them. Yeah. bite it off or right. lick it off. So, And that's not an efficient way to take cannabinoids, but it would have worked. Mm. Enough to get the idea and yeah. start experimenting. Especially if there was some fat around, right? If you were, yeah, that'd be the next step. Yeah. Throw it, let's throw it in the milk. Yeah, or the Bingo. stew or whatever. The day that happened is the day, the day <laughs> mom that. figured that one out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So do you do you have, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Terrence McKenna's stoned ape theory. Yeah. Do you, do you see an evolutionary role for cannabis in, I mean, you, you've posited a human role in the evolution of cannabis. Is there a, a, a cannabis role in the evolution of humans? Obviously, the answer is yes. To, to measure this is more difficult. Right. It's a little more objective for us to look at plants and try to figure it out. Although the domestication of cannabis is, is not completely obvious. A lot of the domestication has been with traits that we don't visually see, mm. like the chemical contents. Mm. But uh, yes, there's obviously been a, an effect of all psychotropic plants on the human evolution. Yeah. It's... Uh, what, what are we? We're the, we're the thinking ape. So right. if we affect our brains in a way, how can we not say that it's helped with our evolution? Now, to be able to, or affected our evolution, I would say it helped. But the, uh, it's difficult to prove any of these things, though. You know, it's, yeah. we can't really, we've never really found a, looked a bit, but never really found a, Co-evolution was what we'd be looking for. Changes on both sides. Changes in humans that are mirrored by changes in the plants and vice versa. Is it true that, that cannabis is the first plant that there's proof of cultivation of? It's one of the earliest plants to show up in uh, habitation sites. Right. Cultivation is more difficult to show. That's often assumed uh, by the kind of site it's in and the other things that are found with it. But uh, obviously it was collected from the wild as a food or drug or fiber product before it was cultivated, but very early on. It may be one of the earliest cultivated plants. Because it's so incredibly useful. As you said, oh, yeah. food or drug or fiber, yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, it's, is there any other plant that's as multi Useful bamboo, sort of, because of yeah, its construction uses and things. Yeah. But you can't get Good high point. on it unless you ferment it. Huh. But of course, that's possible too. Yeah. But there's and there are the brassicas and broccolis and cauliflowers and things. They're really diverse and useful. But there, there's no other plant that really hits it on all three levels. Right. I mean, you can and the oils and the oils too. I mean, yeah. the seed oils and things. You can poppies. Okay. You get morphine from them. Right. You get poppy seeds. You get poppy seed oil. You get that's very similar. Flax, you get the flax seed oil, you get the fiber, no drug. Right. <laughs> yeah, it just hits every yeah. in every cylinder. Yeah. Um, back to the, the evolutionary point, one thing that strikes me is how central uh, cannabis is to the so-called age of exploration. Mm. Right? You've got the sails, you've got the ropes, you've got yeah. the caulking between the the pieces of wood on the ships, the, right. the, you know, the, it would have been impossible right. without cannabis. And you've got people smoking, getting high because it's the best anti-nauseant going and they're at sea all the time. That could well been. I, I don't uh, have records of people, mariners really smoking, but... No? No, but if you look at the, the a lot of these early 
navigational nautical adventures, they didn't know when they were coming back. First of all, they didn't even know where a they were going. A lot of them didn't. You know, a lot of them yeah. didn't come back. Yeah. But it took many, it took several agricultural seasons to get all the way where they were going and back so they could take seeds. If they got somewhere and their rigging was screwed, they could stay here, grow a crop. Uh, they were Europeans. They had right. familiarity with cannabis sativa. The, right. The useful cultivated cannabis was part of their history for centuries by this point. So yeah, they could take it somewhere else. The Chinese, the same. You know, they talk about uh, Zheng Ho's travels and things and how they mm. could have, these fleets could have easily taken hemp and just grown it wherever they were to refurbish their needs or feed themselves for that matter. Right. Or get high if that was part of it. Right, right. Interesting. You said cannabis sativa in Europe. Was that, that's native to the Americas, right? No, it's native to Western Europe. Oh, really? Cannabis isn't native to the Americas at all. Oh, I thought, I always thought sativa was native to the Americas and yeah. indica to Asia. No, it'd be the Western Europe and indica more to, the rest of the oh, world okay. I think is more the way to see it. That there are, are and always will be arguments about the taxonomy of cannabis. Most, most people would still go the traditional approach that all cannabis is member, or all varieties of cannabis, land races, geographical races, whatever, modern cultivars, everything is a subset of cannabis sativa. Hmm. That's still the general, uh, the general um, view. But it doesn't make much sense, and whatever, whether you want to divide sativa up into smaller groups, or call those groups subspecies, or call those groups individual species, is really just a semantic debate. The, the, the message here is that we're dealing with different genomes. There's the Western European, low drug, bred for fiber and, and seed cannabis, that Europeans knew about, and then the other cannabis that came in later, it's cannabis indica, because it came from India, and it had medical value, and that's why it came to, to Europe. It didn't come as a, as a uh, fiber or seed plant. And that is a completely different genome. That was that began in India, rather than Western Europe or, or Central Eastern Europe. Completely separated, geographically isolated, and went about its own evolutionary pattern. But with a common ancestor? Common ancestor at some point. People used to talk about Ruderalis. Right. It, it may have existed at some point. It's almost certainly extinct now if it ever did. Because we've been working with the plant for 10,000 years. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's native to southern Africa, right? No, no, Ruderalis is Central Asian. We, we figure ah, cannabis okay. came originally from Central Eurasia somewhere. Ah. And uh, probably spread from there both east to Eastern Asia, China, Japan. Korea, these ancient hemp cultures, and west into Western Europe, also ancient hemp cultures. Mm. And some drug use along the way here and there, mostly indicated by passages about um, how dangerous it is or uh, how historical passages about how it was suppressed. You don't usually suppress things because they grow fiber and seed. Right. So it's sort of anecdotal. But yeah, there, it, people were getting high even back in the day. So these, so I'm picturing Native American people with their peace pipes smoking uh, marijuana, but you're saying that that wouldn't have happened because no. it didn't get to the Americas until the Europeans brought it, mm -hmm. like horses and mm -hmm. yeah, really. Yeah, smoking was here with tobacco. Tobacco, right? 
which but, was uh, much much stronger than what we have today. Right, apparently. right. There, so I guess that was psychoactive. It's yeah. It, it, I suppose you get a psychoactive effect from partially poisoning yourself, but yeah, nicotine technically isn't psychoactive, but it sure as hell screws you up. So well, it makes me dizzy as fuck. Right. So that's psychoactive. Right. Or physically, it. it it messes with you. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> but uh, smoking probably came along with tobacco, too. There's really no concrete evidence for smoking anything in Eurasia before tobacco. That is if you define smoking as smoking through some sort of a device, not right. just breathing smoke, side right. stream smoking or ambient right. breathing smoke or whatever. So they had tubular devices, which eventually became angular. Some of the Native Americans, are, they're conical. Look, I could chill them, right. actually, except I think they didn't necessarily cup them like a sawdew or something. Yeah. But similar shape. And then they became kind of bent. You see Native Americans that are bent a bit. And uh, then you see Native American pieces that uh, are clay or, or stone, either one. Sometimes they're carved with effigies and things. But they didn't really have stems on them. Until later, I think probably the Native American peace pipes, they got the idea from Europeans, mm. who got the idea about smoking from them. Just a back and forth right. thing. Because the Europeans came up with the 90 degree angled pipe. Right, right. Very quickly. Huh. Because otherwise the ashes fall out in your lap. Yeah, so. or, or you breathe them in, which is even right. worse. Yeah. Or your wife yells at you for messing up the house. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's another hole in the sofa. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what? So this this began as an interest for you, just because you like getting high and you wanted to think about it and understand it, and then it sort of spread into how at this point in your life you're looking at how cultures interact with the plant. Yeah. Is that your? Well, mother cannabis just gave me plenty to do. Yeah, you know it's huge. I, I only study parts of cannabis studies, if you will. You know, you got to focus at some point. I don't explore the medical side very much. I'm really interested in traditional uses of cannabis and how, how cannabis fit into traditional societies and, and how uh, it is and isn't appropriate for modern society mm. and uh, what, what factors make it appropriate in modern day times. It's almost extinct. And Turkey's a great example. I'm, I, I just spent... Uh, most of last uh, year from, from June on in Turkey. And I've been going there for five years, five, six years, and finding hemp textiles, uh, rugs and grain sacks mostly. Rugs are unique to there, but grain sacks is a common use of hemp everywhere it grows. It's, it's always related to other aspects of agriculture. And it makes really tough sacks for, for uh, wheat or barley or whatever, rice, whatever. Coffee? Uh, not so much because coffee's from uh, semi-tropical places where they had other fibers. Uh -huh. um, hemp is really a northern temperate limitation. And that's partly, well, it grows well there. It's partly because it's, it's one of the few northern temperate fiber plants that we have. There's flax. There's rami is, gets to a little more tropical areas. But uh, there aren't a lot of them. You go to India and then there's a, there are books and books about all the native fiber plants of the Indian subcontinent. There are hundreds of them. Huh. So there wasn't so much of an incentive in my mind to grow hemp in those areas. They had plenty of things already. I, I sort of associate hemp with coffee growing areas, you know, Colombia, Jamaica. Mm. Um, but I guess because they're mountainous. So the higher in the mountains, maybe the hemp would grow. And They're getting more of the temperate. Uh, temperature ranges there by being up in the mountains. Right. Um, 
and the long growing yeah, day. Yeah, look at Nepal, for instance, but, but the lowlands of India have some as well. But most of the places that are well known, there is some kind of mountainous thing to it. What's it an artifact of, though? Okay, it's, it's agriculturally that's good. It does fit its natural needs, but mountains are remote places where people get away with stuff. Mm. So right. there's always another aspect of these things. That's, that's the real human side of it. That yeah. Why does cannabis grow there? Because they can do it. So, the, so you're, you're saying that the history of trying to um, suppress the grow, growing, the cultivation of marijuana goes way back. That's not a, oh, sure. a modern thing. Sure. Even before it was illegal, it was often people were outcasts reusing it. It's a lower caste drug in India. Really? It's, it's uh, so, sadhus in the lower class. Right. You know? And the sadhus get away with it because they're sadhus. They're still revered by straight people who wouldn't touch cannabis ever, except at a ritual where they drank a little bong because it was somebody's wedding or something. Right. But that's cultural momentum. That's not really a cultural preference. Really? Okay. So, so bong is not um, revered by all levels of no. Hinduism. In, in religious circles, but not on... Well, by any, by any caste member could be interested in, in smoking cannabis or eating it, but it's not so common. Mm. I think, at least in modern day times, you'd find a lot more uh, higher caste Indians drinking alcohol than smoking hash. Huh, interesting. For sure. Yeah, a remnant of colonization, well, I guess. You, yeah, they, they took on Western habits. Yeah. They didn't used to drink tea either. Yeah. So are there other parts of the world that sort of um, reflect the, the Jamaican, the, the Rastafarian worship of ganja? Is, and ganja, is it called ganja because of India and the Ganges? Right. That's yeah, because yeah. it came from India, and that was the name in, in India. So, right. Yeah. So do you, are With there, are indentured there... servants during the 1830s is when that probably began, when slavery ended in... Uh, the British colonies, and they began bringing in Indian indentured servants. That's likely the Slaves time. by another name. Yeah. They yeah. paid them a little bit. And debt. Debt slaves. Took them really far. Yeah. That's where we're going now. Yeah. <laughs> going back. Um, so, yeah, are there other religions that are sort of based on the worship of, of marijuana? No, really not so much. Branches of Hinduism, but... No, not so much. I mean, there are Muslim sects, the Sufis. They were mm. tolerant of hash use. I don't think it was ever a major cornerstone of their faith. But right. Sufism is known for tolerance in general. Mm. So, uh, you know, trance dancing is another thing they tended mm. to do, maybe when they didn't have enough hash. Right. But, uh, are, they, are they the ones who spin a lot? Yeah, the dervishes. The dervishes are the famous right. ones from Turkey. That yeah. Mavlana sect of... But that, that's a... That's... God, that's the wrong... going to be the wrong word. That's kind of a whitewashed and politicized version of Sufi. It's the one that everybody knows from the postcards. Right. But Sufism has generally uh, been suppressed by mainstream Islam since its inception. Because it's so tolerant. Yeah, basically. That's the yeah. main reason. I right. mean, you didn't have to convert from another um, religion to become Sufi. You have to give up Christianity to become uh, not Sunni or a Shia, right. but not from the Sufi side. That's And they allow women. Women go to, they don't really have mosques so much, but the meeting places and, and prayer places of these minority Islamic people allow women. Right. And it's, 
I think, find it fascinating. Tolerance yeah. is a good thing. In this and the Baha'i religion is also based in that part of the world. Yes, very... the Baha'i Central Temple is in New Delhi. Oh, it's in New Delhi. Yeah, they have a huge temple near Delhi that's quite a, quite an acoustical uh, wonder, if nothing else. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was yeah. picked up hitchhiking in Alaska by a Baha'i woman and. Uh, she had two little kids in the back of her Volkswagen camper van, and I was hitching with two dudes, and she picked us up on the Alcan Highway, and we rode with her for three days. And I just, from that day on, I have immense respect yeah. for the Baha'i religion, yeah. that she would pick up three full-grown guys and give us a ride to Fairbanks. Yeah, was <laughs> um, But I, I interrupted you. You were talking about how the sort of uh, uh, traditional use of cannabis is almost extinct, I think you were saying. Well, the, the traditional uses and the cultivation of it and a lot of the varieties that people used to grow until relatively recently. Really? They're, yeah. they're discarded because the whole thing's moved toward the psychoactive use now as opposed to practical industrial well, that's use? that's part of it. it it's, there's lots of different reasons. As far as hemp goes, non-psychoactive hemp. And we're talk, so just to be clear, cannabis is, a, is an umbrella term that includes hemp and marijuana. Right. It's the genus that nobody argues about. The fact that all these plants are members of genus cannabis. They argue mm -hmm. about whether they're sativas or indicas or right. some other species, possibly. And I am involved in this arg argument, too. I can't say be third person about it. But basically, the division is you have plants that contain psychoactive THC and plants that don't. Mm -hmm. And that's heritable. And so other than have, that, they're the same plant. Yeah, basically. Right. They, they look the same. They're adapted to all different kinds of places. They look similar, right. not the same. They smell similar, but not the same. There's there's plenty of variation, huge variation. Right. But those are the basic two divisions of, of separating the gene pools. And the sativa gene pool, the European narrow-leafed hemp varieties, are, are rather... Um, genetically uniform compared to everything else. Hmm. They've been uh, genetically isolated there where, where people took drug varieties all over the world in the meantime. And they took varieties that descended from, sim from common ancestors and made both hemp and drug varieties out of them. The way we look at it, the Eastern Eurasian gene pool, broad-leaved hemp varieties as a way of broad leaflet, as a way of differentiating them. Um, they're relatively low in THC also, but they have the potential to produce it, just like all the other drug varieties that are neighboring to them, India, Southeast Asia, these places, and where drug cannabis is spread from there. And so those, I tend to include them in, uh, in species indica, because they're all much more similar to each other than they are to the European sativa. Mm -hmm. But once again, the point is that they're different isolated gene pools. And what humans have done is begin to mix these up, mm -hmm. especially the, uh, the drug side of things. Right. There are Eastern Asia, Eurasian and Western Eurasian hemp hybrids, and they've been involved through breeding since the 1800s. But recently, since the 1970s, it's... Uh, our crowd, our smoker crowd, that's basically mixed everything up. And, and the extinction part comes from a number of reasons. 
The cultures have changed. Um, they no longer have the isolation they may have needed. The world is spreading, the civilized world, the, the frantic world is spreading. They maybe don't have uh, the places they used to be able to grow things. They have market substitutes in the case of uh, hemp because there are all these plastics that have come in and all kinds of, of uh, petrochemical-based replacements. Wait, explain that? What, what do you mean? Um, we have fiber, natural fibers in general are in competition with petrochemical oh, fibers. Oh, okay, okay. And, and they're uh, much more, they're much easier to produce than, than agriculture does it. Right. Agriculture also, we have to feed people more every day. So it doesn't. It makes less and less sense to grow fibers if you can make them, mm. as long as you have enough oil to make them out of. It's uh, it, it. What about paper? Isn't hemp much more efficient in manufacturing paper? It's a very good paper pine. paper source. It's uh, it's more recyclable than short fibers, so it has a longer life in the recycling chain, which with paper is very important these days. Right, and that that is a good use of it. But where. Increasingly a paperless society. Mm. So the way we're, we're dealing with shortages of pulp is to quit reading books and printing forms and mm. doing all those sorts of things. Right. So that's uh, lowering our needs. But yes, it's excellent for paper, and it was involved in some of the earliest paper making. And one of the reasons that cannabis may have spread back in the day was as a, a paper making pulp source. And it's renewable and has a lot of advantages over trees. Read the Emperor Wears No Clothes. It's right, been around great for, book. For yeah. But uh, it, there's all just lots and lots of of things. If you want to look at it genetically, like like I try to do, we don't have the the situations anymore for the varieties to be maintained. We didn't have um, the big gene banks around the world, with the exception of the Russians. Um, didn't really consider cannabis to be of any value and a big pain in the butt. Made people stoned. We don't really need it for anything. We've got other fiber plants. We've got other seed plants. Didn't really need it so much, and it was illegal and difficult to figure out the paperwork and things to put illegal seeds into seed collections, and basically we just missed out. So you can't go back to a gene bank, germplasm bank, and take out things that should be there, the original wild or landrace uh, farmer varieties, should be there, but they're not. Um, and we've taken these farmer varieties, land races, the original varieties that farmers created in concert with the local environment by making their own selections, growing their seeds, their own seeds each year. We've lost the, the selective pressures that those had. When you move a variety to another place, it's another climate. When you select it for a different use, it becomes another plant, becomes another cultivated variety. So we've, we've changed what we want from cannabis and we've taken away the cultures that preserve the old varieties. Mm. So we've eroded things from both ways. That kind of conservation is called in situ conservation, mm -hmm. where you keep the culture intact and, the, and right. the cultural need for that plant, any plant, and that preserves the land race. Right. But it's all uh, plastic, it can all change very easily. Yeah. Yeah, uh, getting getting back to the early uses and, and these these the reason that it was cultivated by these various cultures uh, is there archaeological evidence of textile use very early on? Very early, 
But when you look at archaeological evidence, you have to be very uh, careful to, to grade the evidence. And I'll give you an example. The most certain archaeological evidence is a seed. As you look at it, and you go, that's a cannabis seed. Right. It looks a little bit like a hop seed, but it's a cannabis seed. Right. We know what that is. Fibers degrade quite mm. easily. They all look relatively the same. Not entirely the same, but especially once they've degraded a bit, they're very difficult to tell apart. Oh, they're really? Flax from hemp, for instance. Oh, really? You can't do a DNA or test or something? Or hemp parami. The DNA is usually degraded. Uh, yes, sometimes it does work. People have done it. But the storage uh, conditions have to be really good. A super cold place or dry and cold, right. and things like dry, cold cave. Super, but very little of that's been done. But some of it successfully. Um, you get imprints of fibers, are more common than actually even finding the fiber. And, uh, uh, and that doesn't tell you much unless you know that the people around that area grew hemp, and then you go, oh, there's a very high likelihood that those fiber prints are right. hemp, but that's. And those are imprints in like ceramics or yeah, something? Yeah, ceramics usually, right. or mud on the bottom of a, of a house, uh, or a hearth that got something pressed into it and then fired right. because of the heat or right. something like that. Right. But they're not, it's not conclusive sort of evidence. Yeah. Interestingly, one of the, old, the oldest archaeological find of, of hemp is a seed from Japan from about 10,000 years ago. Wow. And it's from a habitation site. So they maybe collected it from the wild, maybe they grew it. Coastal place. Interesting. Right, for making nets and things. And it wasn't a viable seed, I imagine. No, no. That would no. be interesting to sprout that baby. Oh, yeah. Interesting just to get some DNA you get out your of it. DNA, yeah. Just to see where it belongs in relation to other plants. Yeah. Well, I imagine, I mean, when I think about early humans, uh, a good, flexible, durable fibers would have been really important for baby slings, which are probably one of the first human inventions. Hammocks, which I argue are the first human invention. They predate humans because both chimps and bonobos weave branches together and sleep in them at mm. night. And so our ancestors, you know, before they were even Homo sapiens, were probably weaving things together to sleep mm. on, mm. so they weren't on the ground. Mm -hmm. And um, hunting nets, mm. you know, which are very, uh, very uh, so, you know, air quotes, primitive people still right. use hunting nets today. They found prints of hunting nets in uh, Eastern European caves and things. Twenty-eight thousand years, I believe. And they mm -hmm. and these papers posit that that's flax mm. because flax grew in the area. But hemp would be is an equal, equally logical choice if you're just going to pick one and. Right. Favor one over another. So you think there's a cultural bias in, in some anthropological or archaeological? Oh, absolutely. Did you ever go to the Women's Museum in Hanoi, perchance? No. Great little museum. They no. have a floor of ethnic minority women's costumes and culture and stuff. Yeah. It's quite good, actually. It's a kind of museum I've never seen anywhere else. But they have there a three-ring binder of the Hmong people around Sapa and Lao Cai up in the north there. The Hmong are... Uh, Immigrated from China originally, um, and they're long-term, long-time hemp users. They make the beautiful blue and white batik pleated skirts that, mm. that hemp people see occasionally. And there's a photo of black Hmong people in this an eight by ten photo, color photo, of two Hmong women standing in front of a hemp field of two or three meter tall hemp plants, and the caption says, "Hmong women harvesting flax." <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's like, yes, there is a prejudice against yeah, this. A little bit, a little it's, bit. It's to yeah. the point, point of being ridiculous. But. So what do you think, I mean, just to, to, to reflect on something you were talking about earlier, you, you've several times you've pointed to the cultural suppression of marijuana. It makes you stoned. You know, it's a troublesome plant and different cultures were, were trying to stamp it out. And it was grown in the mountains because you could get away with it. But those cultures all had other intoxicants that they celebrated. Right. And whether it's alcohol or tobacco or whatever, um, you know, it's not uncommon for cultures to have intoxicants that are accepted. So why would marijuana have been the, the sort of the, the black sheep? You know, why, why would marijuana have been suppressed? My guess, and it's only, it's only my theory, is because, let me back up just slightly, it's because alcohol and tobacco are intoxicants and cannabis is not. Uh-huh. That's one of the things right there. And the other two suppress, they do intoxicate you. In other words, they are toxic and they make you, they down your game. Yeah. You know, a couple of beers and you're good to go and six beers and you're not functioning nearly as well. And tobacco's poisonous too. And it screws you up. Right. You know. Marijuana, on the other hand, makes you think. It makes right. you think outside the box. Right. You might get really high and fall asleep. You might eat yourself half to death. But it, it's, it, it's, it wears off. It doesn't have a permanent effect, apparently. They've been trying to find things wrong with it in the scientific community since the 70s with the UN research and then everything else. They've spent millions and millions and millions of misdirected research money trying to find things wrong with cannabis. Believe me, if they had, we would have heard all about it. Yeah. And they can't find but the smallest little things, and, and they usually don't hold up when they... Even the smoking, study. Even, even smoking, which we know irritates the lungs and the throat and the mucosa and all that, because of the protective effect of the, of, I guess it's the cannabinoids, people who smoke marijuana seem to have less lung cancer than people who smoke nothing at all. Right. It's fucking incredible. Right. It is incredible. They actually have protective functions even though we're smoking it. Just think if we administered it without smoking, which, as you say, intuitively has just got to be not the best way to do it, even yeah. if it's not as harmless for a little tobacco. Another thing about these three things we're talking about is it's really hard to control cannabis, as countries have noticed. It is easy to grow. It's relatively available. The seeds can be transported anywhere. There, It's... And you can do it in your backyard. Alcohol takes a process. You have to keep your brewing stuff mm. clean, or you have to uh, do something. You start with hops and barley, or in the case of wine, grapes, and and you got to do something with it. You have to allow another organism to ferment it. Right. Things can go haywire. All you have to do with wheat is dry it. You either do uh. it right or wrong, and maybe it molds a little bit, but. It doesn't create something that's going to make you really sick. So commercially, <laughs> the interest is in alcohol because it's something that's easier to control. It's easier to control. Marijuana there is are never going to be big points money. in the. Right. There's got to be a brewery, right. a winery, right. not just a vineyard, and people making their own wine, which of course is legal. You can make your own beer. You can uh, grow your own tobacco as long as you don't grow too much in America. I think you can grow an eighth of an acre without chapping anybody's ass, even in Kentucky. Mm. But uh, who does it? 
Yeah. <laughs> and Andy Wild grew Rustica on these things years ago. He always had this stuff with him when he was hanging yeah. around or telling people about it and his chilies and all his stuff. But <laughs> there's no economic there's no economic impetus to, yeah. for it. it. It wasn't controllable enough. Tobacco, same way. I mean, you have to make it into something. Pipe smoking. People don't hardly smoke pipes. That's the raw form. You take it out of a bag, put it in a pipe. People want cigarettes. So yeah. that's, that's become the market mm. point. Where cannabis is going to go, who knows? Probably vape pens are going to be huge. Yeah. They're discreet. Smoking's kind of passe these days. What Young do you think people about don't smoke tobacco as much as they used to. Yeah. So why smoke anything? Yeah. You know. What do you think about uh, Rick Simpson oil? Do you know much about that? I think it has promise, and I uh, I think it's, this is hard, it's hard for me to say anything without pissing somebody off, but I'll reverse it. I think it's really sad that desperate parents have to resort to fucking snake oil because they can't get a reasonable cannabinoid tested, vetted medicine for their kids. Hmm. These parents are so desperate, they're experimenting on their children. Yeah. And they have to because they don't have another alternative. It tears yeah. your heart out, but it's wrong. Yeah. They shouldn't be doing this. And, and I don't have the right to sit here and give medical advice. I'm not a doctor. You know, I can yeah. do anything I want to myself, but I don't think we should do it to our kids necessarily unless you have no other alternative. Right. And, uh, it, but it's not for everybody. They consume massive quantities of this stuff, and it ain't cheap. It hasn't gotten cheap enough yet that this is possible to really do for most people. Yeah. For people who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about highly concentrated, what are they, oils? They're extracts. Yeah, the weed oil or extract. Yeah, yeah. That, that some people have said seem to have anti-tumor uh, qualities, anti-spasm uh, qualities for kids who have epilepsy, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, is it mostly C is it the, the CBDs that are... The anti um, They seem to be good for anti-spasmodics, but yeah. it's not just CBD. Yeah. that's See, that's the other thing that's so hard. I mean, as you pointed out, there's been this prohibition on serious scientific study of this stuff for since when, the late 60s, early mm -hmm. mid-60s. And it's only relaxing now, largely thanks to uh, MAPS and, and mm -hmm. other organizations mm -hmm. that have been pushing consistently for this. Um, but the, the thing that, that makes studying marijuana so difficult is that, you know, we like to isolate one little chemical and say that's the active mm. principle in this. But in marijuana, am I right that there are dozens, if not hundreds, of active chemicals? There are the primary cannabinoids that are only made by cannabis plants. Hence, they're called cannabinoids. But they also exist in the body. Some there, of them, well, there we produce things that go into the same receptors. So uh, that's why okay. they now say that humans have an endocannabinoid system. Right. It's really that. Yeah, that's that's. But the molecules aren't exactly the same. No, they're not the same. They're they're produced by the human body, and they're not phytocannabinoids. They're, right. They're so they're like keys that that fit into the same lock, but exactly. they're not the same keys. Exactly. Okay. And and those. Um, the endocannabinoid system apparently is in, in responsible for all kinds of modulatory things in the human body, our, uh, from immune systems to our metabolism. Right. You know? And, and um, that's why we have this system. That's right. why all mammals have this system, and lots of other animals as well. We had, bees are one of the only groups of animals that 
don't seem to have cannabinoid receptors. Really? But well, they found them almost everywhere else they've looked. And maybe they found them in bees by now, too. That's huh. a bit old information. But um, they're... The, the cannabinoids are, are the main pharmacological products, but then the terpenoids, all these things, primarily terpenes, are um, responsible for aromatic constituents. The varietal differences that you notice as soon as you open a bag of marijuana, you right. don't have to smoke it, you go, it smells like this. Right. And you can anticipate certain effects because of the way it smells. Really? So this is a, it's not easy to solve because it's a self-fulfilling circle of right. this smells right so I expect this effect so I get it All right yeah you know sort of thing but yeah. we need science double blind real science experiments to figure this out right but there's something there there's something to it but once again it's back to how easy it is to grow yeah because there's there's no proprietary there's no IP here what are you going to do? Go show that THC is really good for something so that everybody can produce their own THC in the backyard? I mean, if we could make aspirin from willow trees, we'd all have a willow tree. It's not that complicated. Right. But uh, it's easier to go buy it. And But they don't have any incentive for this. And people who are, are trying to, to uh, transition into the legal recreational, or I'd rather call it social or adult use cannabis, that's a different incentive. Well, it's the same incentive. It's money. But there's a way to do this because it's about marketing and branding and things. It's not about medicines, which is proving efficacy and then proving that it's not harmful. And this is millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Okay, And big companies are the only ones who have millions of dollars. And they're not going to go into these things unless there's the silver bullet. If they got into cannabis and found some compound we don't even know about yet, and then they could synthesize it in the lab more efficiently. Yeah. Then they'd have a product and they could get back their investment of hundreds of millions of dollars, which they, is fair. They'd have to be That's able what to it patent is. it. That's what it yeah. is. They have to be able to protect their intellectual property, patenting yeah. or some other way. Or just not tell anybody how they did it. But yeah. with medicines, you can't really do that because you have to divulge everything in the process so they can say it's okay. Huh. You know, it's not going to hurt anybody. This is really that logic, which is what our medical system, all Western medicine is based on, is not particularly compatible with herbal um, medicines in the first place because they're almost always multiple compound effects. Right. That's the value of herbal medicines. It's the hard part to understand, but it's these combinations of things that are important within each herbal um, source and the blending of them. So this is where shamans and healers and People started off and became doctors after centuries. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it, it's, it's not, I get in trouble when I say this too, but medical cannabis is a gateway. It, it, it's the gateway to adults being able to make their own decisions about their health and who, their life. Who do you get in trouble with when you say I that? get in trouble with people who, who think what I'm saying is that cannabis is not a good medicine. What I'm saying is that now that we are getting what we wanted in the first place, I know a lot of people actually get medical relief. I'm not hassling those people. Mm -hmm. They need to live in a place where they can make an adult decision about their own way forward with their own indications and problems. Right. They've had to do this because it's been illegal. But the next step is walking into the pharmacy 
and buying something that's been tested, that's known to be pure, you know exactly what's in it, and there's indications that it's been shown to be good for it. Hmm. Instead of, right now we're not even to the St. John's wort level. We're not, we're not able to go in and buy a bag of dried St. John's wort. You can't say it's good for anything on the package. That's the pure food and drug mm-hmm. packaging laws, right. which protect us. They're good things. But you can't say that's good for anything, even though it's the anecdotal evidence says over 2,000 years it's great stuff. For antidepressant. And we, yeah, antidepressant in this case. But you can have a blog site all about it, and you can have a pamphlet in the next rack right. next to the St. John's work. Right. You just can't say anything about it. So right. people get the info. They experiment on their own. And that we get a lot of information from that. But back to the Rick Simpson sort of thing, they're not recording good data. Right. You can't compare one patient to the next. You can't get any science out of it. And that's eventually what we need. Yeah. You have to remember that a third of indications just go into remission and disappear on their own yeah. without taking anything. Right. There's roughly a third, you know, and, and placebo studies show that if you think it works, it works. So are we separating these yeah. these things or not? We're struggling. So it sounds like you're frustrated with the sense that um, a lot of the culture around medical marijuana is averse to the scientific method. It's not averse to it. It's that it's not been able to benefit from it because mm. there hasn't been any science to help these people, really. Mm. And so that you have to go on anecdotal sort of Right. Evidence. And part of that's because of the stigma around marijuana and, like, serious doctors don't want to work with it. And part of it is the legal uh, prohibition until very recently. And part of it's just the complicated and the, the financial lack of incentive, right. you know. So, yeah, there are lots of different reasons that this science isn't forthcoming. Right. Yeah. And it's not likely to be. Yeah. If, if if philanthropic individuals wanted to research along these lines, it'll happen. Otherwise, I don't, it's all, to me, it's all, I'm not an economist, but I know one thing, follow the money. Yeah. If there's not an economic incentive for things to happen in this yeah. modern day and, day and age, it's called philanthropy. Philanthropy is all it's going right. to help you. Right. You know, it's, it's, there's nobody who's going to want to do this. Even the investment you see now in cannabis, a lot of it's empty. They're, they're not investing in companies that are really producing much, unless they're pot growers. Right. Okay, that's the production end, or making an extract or something. A lot of it's uh, trying to build companies that are of perceived value and then sell them. But if you look at, at the honest side of it, to me, what they're actually producing and selling and their, prof, their profit stream and things, it's almost impossible to measure for most of these companies. They're they're in a new legal realm. They're, it's all about the promise of all this right. stuff. It's not really about the actuality yet. Right. And right. We're, we're years away from that. The medical thing, you need to, to for medical, for people to self-medicate, which they need to do, you, what you want is an adult use system. And stop using the M word, not marijuana, but medicine. Hmm. Those are the big players aren't going to appreciate this. It's not the food it should be called the Food or Drug Administration, hmm. not the Food and Drug Administration. We don't have any food drugs or any drug foods. We have alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Those guys, they do the stuff that are potables and smokables that have drugs in them. Okay? But if you start talking medicine, it's, it's the FDA. Yeah. And, and what, is, what is an FDA regulator going to think of a medible? Uh, a high potency THC containing bright wild cherry red 
flavored, yeah. flavored gummy bear. Gummy bear that mom leaves out because she falls asleep watching TV. Right. I mean, this is come on. I'm not yeah. trying to make scare stories, but yeah. this is not how the medical community operates. Yeah, yeah. and this is not going to hold water. If you want to make gummy bears at home and feed them to your kids for that matter or your dog or whatever that's your business yeah you know yeah as long as your kids are still making it to school <laughs> but yeah, that's fuck, your business that, that's that's adult family decisions and i'm very libertarian about yeah. this all that stuff belongs at home yeah along with sex and religion you can keep all that stuff at home too thanks all right all right all right Good. Well, that's I, I like. I I'm normally the one doing all the ranting, so it's good to have. Yeah, I got to rant a little good, bit. Good to have yeah. a good rant. There. <laughs> uh, is there anything we've we've gone over an hour at this point? I don't want to wear you out. It's early in the morning yeah, still. No, it's okay. As far as I'm concerned, uh, is there anything that we haven't covered that's uh, near and dear to your heart? What was the name of your last book again? Uh, Cannabis Evolution and Ethnobotany. Just came out in paperback, so you can pay less than fifty bucks for it now nice. instead of uh, ninety-five. Unless you missed one as a book collector, I think the hardback's out of print. Uh, at the moment. And is it available on Amazon? Yes, absolutely. All right. Yeah, and usually at a bit of a discount. All all my books are available on Amazon, as far as I know. Great. Um, one thing I did want to talk about a little bit is just the latest thing I've been doing because it's so much fun. We didn't talk about fishing at all. Oh, yeah, there's fishing. That's what I do, and I'm not obsessed by cannabis. But uh, Can I use that picture you sent me to, to post on the page? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's, sure, sure, that, sure. Was, that was with the snakehead? Uh, the one I say is probably an arowana, the bright red one. Uh, I'll show you later. I'll uh, give you another photo. Okay. But, uh, right. Yeah, I like to fish a lot, but uh, man needs a hobby. Yeah. But uh, what I've been doing, what I did this summer, I, didn't, I haven't been fishing for a year. I spent most of it in Turkey, as I mentioned, and... Uh, Working on starting a hemp business. This is uh, something that people did a long time ago, and, and they came and went, and some of them still survive. But we've decided that since we no longer have to explain to people, at least not very many people, what hemp is, you know, or we've, we've won that battle. People know it's a fiber and seed plant and of some use, and it doesn't make you high. Um, we're working with the last remaining hemp farmers in Turkey. Oh. And I looked for years to try to find people still growing it. And uh, we can talk later just about that and, and the reasons for, for why it's come to where it is. But uh, this is really fun. It's really great to find this community that still wants to grow hemp. They've got the cultural momentum going, but they've lost their markets for it. They're down to producing hardly any. It's almost all old people are doing it. Mm. And we're trying to switch that around, get young people interested, put in an economic incentive so that people will continue to grow hemp and keep their cultural tradition going and in situ conservation of the land races that they've been growing for hundreds of years and try to do it the right way. It's too late most places, but. What's their market? Are they selling it to carpet makers? They were, no, the carpet making thing is gone. That was mostly, never really was business. People did that domestically for their mm -hmm. own households. Um, that's how uh, hemp weaving and rope making and things generally are around the world. It's a cottage industry. And uh, the, the purpose there was a bit for the paper mills, but mostly for uh, rope manufacture. Uh -huh. And that's been a tradition since the Ottoman days, making ropes for rigging for the Ottoman Navy. Right. Back to the, right. the naval use again. Do you have a, a blog or a website where people can see mm, any of your travels? No, or? no, I've got a, a Facebook account people can find, but I don't uh, communicate through it much. And I have... Uh, 
Yeah, I'm starting to get a little more social uh, media presence, but <laughs> yeah. I just kind of came out of my cave. But, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, good. I'm glad you did. Robert Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E. Right? Correct. Okay. A proper Clark. A proper Clark. Clarky. Thanks for doing this. Man. Hey, thank you, Chris. Really good to see you again. You too. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through Patreon.com. You can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through Amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called the bright side of the sun i believe you can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com if you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can because... Ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day
to the ground. 